anything? Oh, maybe it is now. Okay. Yeah, we started recording um, our our lessons on Wednesday nights. So um, I think I can't. I, I think it's VGBC dot org forward slash. I think it's like Wednesday night Bible study, something like that. WNBS. If you ever miss one and want to catch it online, I think that's where you can find it. Um. Just a reminder, next week, next Wednesday, is our last time to meet. We follow the Awana calendar, and so it'll be our last time to meet for 2022, which is hard to believe. And then we'll resume in January, uh, January 11th is when we'll start back up. Okay, Any anything we need to pray about before we pray and get going? A lot of books to read. Yeah. Oh, on Wednesday nights? Yeah, really? Well, we're going to take a break from the series over the holidays. So it'll be a three-week break. And I'm going to recommend that everybody read, start getting ahead in the book of Psalms. So that way you're not stuck with 150 Psalms in one week, right? (laughs) I think Mr. Miller was complaining about that. (laughs) So we're taking a break for him. (laughs) I'm joking. All right. Anything we need to pray about? All right. Let me let me pray for us. Father, we lift up the evening to you. I know that there are a lot of things on our our hearts and minds, our country and our city, and think about the recent shooting. And I know there's a lot of personal things as well. So we do come to you recognizing we are in need of you and your grace and your mercy, and we pray that our time and your word tonight would would um, be encouraging to us and motivate us to keep seeking you, keep seeking your face, keep living faithfully before you for your glory, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're talking about this pattern that we see in the book of Second Kings. It's also a pattern we see throughout the Bible um, but before we talk about this biblical pattern, what, what you know, what are some examples of patterns in the world, in life, in our lives? What are what are some examples of patterns that we see? <laughs> Sunrise, sunset—that's a good example. It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty standard. And these days, it's setting pretty early. It's like four thirty, and gets dark outside. It's kind of depressing. Any other examples of patterns? Is that from a particular, is that a, like a play or a fiddler on the roof? All right. Yeah. Days of the week, seasons. We're kind of starting in season here, aren't we? Traffic is a pattern. Good point. Yeah, aging. Yeah, we have these stages, and everybody goes through them. And we learn from them, and certain characteristics of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Up, oh, there's pros and cons of each stage. Yes, sounds biblical. Time to sow and a time to reap. That's good. Yeah. 
Yes, all kinds of patterns. Yeah, I was watching a basketball game the other night, and they were talking about uh, how in the game there's usually three or four runs. You know, like one team will make a run, and then the other team will make a run. You know, and then the question is who get who gets more, and how long do they last? It's kind of interesting. Different patterns in different sports. One of the patterns in soccer, obviously, is in the headlines a lot these days with the World Cup. One of the patterns in soccer is pretty low-scoring game, right? I think the U.S. had two zero-to-zero scores. Is that right? And then they won one-to-zero. So they've played three games and scored one goal. Right? Got a, uh, there's a pattern there, low-scoring. And, of course, Americans, we like, typically like higher-scoring games other than baseball. Baseball's America's sport, but... Not usually too high scoring, at least not at the professional level. All right, so these are examples. There's all kinds of patterns, and, and, and we, we like studying patterns, and it's fun, isn't it, to, to notice patterns and think about it and talk about it. And that's, we do that. That's, that's a lot of what you do in education. You study patterns and, and the exceptions. And the, you know, so we're fascinated with this, and no surprise we see a certain pattern here. Uh, we're in the book of Second uh, Kings. Second Kings. I wrote down First Kings, but it's Second Kings, and we're looking at chapter seventeen. And uh, we, I chose chapter seventeen because of the summary. Thankfully, it's, there's a summary because Second Kings is a challenging book. anybody Anybody read it recently in the past few weeks? Yeah, it's challenging. Some of the names, and then we get to First Chronicles. It's challenging too, especially the first cha- nine chapters are uh, genealogies, and you know it's not a it's not a page turner. You know you have to really be diligent. But um, thankfully, there's a nice summary here. It kind of reminds me of the summary that we saw in the Book of Judges. And so here's the pattern that I've I've kind of identified uh, in Second Kings and in this passage. And it begins with God blessing. So God blesses. And I think we see this, for example, in verse 7. It says, This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So it, it mentions sin first, but it's sin against God, the Lord their God. And I mentioned on Sunday that when you see LORD in all caps, it's a good indication. It's, it's referring to Yahweh, and that's a good reminder. This is the God who spoke to Moses. And in verse, look at verse 7. It says, uh, Who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then verse 8, They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so just a good reminder that the pattern begins with God the one who saved them from Egypt, the one who drove out the nations, the one who created them. Uh, And this phrase, the Lord their God, is a phrase that we see five times throughout this, just this one section. The Lord their God. I think, what, what, what is that? What's the significance of the Lord their God? Why is that significant? Any thoughts? Yeah, they need a reminder. He's their God, and it's personal. 
they know Him and He knows them, and not just a force, not just kind of a, a, a deity. This is their God, the Lord their God. And, and you know, I, just, I think it's important that we begin here, because I think the pattern begins here. The story of the Bible begins here. In the beginning, God. And uh, who was it that said that's the most important four words of the, of the John Stott, maybe? The most important words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. You start in the you've got to start in the right place. That's the point. But why why is it important that we begin here? And what are the consequences if we don't? If we don't get this, God, the Creator, the one who blesses, the one who creates paradise, that this is the beginning. Why is it important we begin there and not somewhere else? And what are the consequences if we begin somewhere else? In terms of how we think about him and the story and even thinking in terms of sharing the gospel with somebody. You're sharing the gospel with somebody. Why is it crucial that they get God, the creator, who blesses, who's, who's good? Can start with that. Start there. Yeah. 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 It's a great point. You don't start with him, then you know that kind of raises the question, where do you start? You're starting somewhere else, anywhere else, anyone else, you got a problem. And even if you start with the self, um, you know, then then it, it, the whole thing can be about the self. If you don't ever get to God, the creator, that that's a problem. Because, you know, sometimes evangelism approaches start with the self, which is not the worst. I mean, I'm not saying that's evil, but I'm saying if you if you only stick with the self, if you never get to God, the creator, then you haven't really shared the gospel. But it, but there's a temptation to be, you you know, you have a problem. God can meet your need, but it's all about you. There's no creator God, and that, that's a problem. Any other thoughts on... Why it's essential that we begin with, begin here, or at the very least, understand this is the beginning. Yeah, he's the foundation, foundation of everything. So if I don't get that, then I'm kind of building a stack of cards that can fall pretty easily. Yeah. Ah, okay, that's good. Right. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. There's kind of two extremes I could go to if I don't start here. One extreme is I never get to God. Another extreme is I get to God, but it's solely the wrathful God. And there certainly is a wrathful God, but that's not actually where the story starts. The story starts with the God who blesses, the good God, the God who creates for His glory and for our joy, and we get to enjoy it. And so we can miss out on the, the what you're calling the positive aspect of God, the Creator. That's good. Good point. I think we covered that pretty well, unless there's any other thoughts on that. Okay, the second part of the pattern is we rebel. So it, it doesn't stay good news very long. <laughs> right? It starts out really good news. And by the way, we see this pattern over and over, don't we? The garden, and then God rescues out, 
and you kind of have a new beginning. We've talked about this. And then you're given, they're given the land. It's a new beginning. And then they're given Israel and Jerusalem. And, it's, you know, and, then, and then they're going to be returned from Babylon and they're going to have a new beginning. There's, there's always this kind of this fresh start. This, and it it's always starts with God blesses, but it, it tends to unravel and it unravels because we rebel. So this brings us back to verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So that word sin, of course, is an important word. And it means, just very literally, very strictly, to miss the mark. Um, but, you know, I made the point on Sunday, you can miss the mark just playing a darts. You know, you play darts, you've sinned, you've erred, but that's not necessarily a problem per se. But in the Bible, the sin, missing the mark, is a problem because of whose mark we're missing. We're missing the king's mark. We're missing the one who's in authority over us. And so I, I like to use the word rebellion because I, it gets at that image of the king. He's a king and we rebel against him and we rebel against the one in authority. That's what sin is. And it says, The people of Israel did secretly against their Lord their God things that were not right. So oftentimes our sin, especially as God's people, we try to make it secret. We try to keep it secret. We try to keep it hidden. We don't talk about it. It's usually done, you know, at night or in the dark. Um, that's often, often, you know, we, we think we can kind of get away with things. But I, I mentioned this on Sunday, 18 times book, we see this phrase, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So everything we do is always in the sight of the Lord. And the, the pattern here is they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So let me ask this question. Why, do, why is there something inside of us that thinks we can get away with sin? It's a, it's a human pattern, right? It's a pattern. We think we can get away with it. Why? What? It seems so obvious that we can't, that God sees all. and no. Why do we so naturally think we can get away with sin. Pride? Yeah? We justify it. So we say it's not really it's not really that bad, therefore. Yeah. And what's the let's let's explore the pride one. Why why pride? Why does pride cause me to think I can get away with it? Yeah. I know better. I can do this in a way that won't get exposed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, isn't it true that almost any time you read the headlines about somebody who gets caught in some massive thing, you just go, how could you possibly have thought that this was going <laughs> to... This is just silly, right? How could you possibly think you could have gotten away with this? But somewhere along the line, they thought, I'll do this. and Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep, that's true. Yep. Absolutely. Mhm. Mm 
Going to take the life out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. A pattern of bad choices that kind of leads us to, you know, and, and you know, obviously you head down that path and pretty soon you're you're making all kinds of bad decisions. Yeah. 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 There's an immediate immediate pleasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Uh, Right. 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 Like if I have a room full of people looking at me, I'm probably going to be held in check pretty well, but but I'll forget that, well, the only one who ultimately really matters is always aware of everything I do. Yeah. 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 Which is, it also gets back to the importance of kind of always reminding ourselves of these doctrinal truths, and one of them is God's present everywhere, knows all, sees all. That's a good, which has a, it has a side to it that stings, but it also has a side to it that's comforting. Like he's, he's with you. Okay, the third part of this pattern is that God warns. God warns. Um, look with me at verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. I love, I love this, this idea. Is merciful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't say, You messed up, I'm done with you. And the proof is just read the book. It's like he keeps raising up kings. And and he's warning the people. And he he literally is sending and raising up prophets to warn them. Uh, this is how God works. He doesn't typically unveil a message in the sky. You know, this is how he works. He he works by his prophets. Raises them up, sends them to the king to warn. And I made the point on Sunday, we should think of the prophets first and foremost as preachers. You know, they're preaching a message. Think about Jonah. What's his message? Forty days and Nineveh's going to fall. And of course, what's implied is, unless you repent. because And that's why Jonah doesn't want to go, because he's afraid they're going to repent. And then they do. And then therefore, the judgment doesn't come. That's Because that's what a prophet does. He's not, he's not predicting the future so much. Of course, there are some predictive aspects to the prophets, but it's a very, very small percentage of the prophecies of the Bible are predictive in nature. You know, there's certainly some, and they're important, and they're key, and we know them, and, and, and rightly so. But 
the bulk, you just read the prophets. The bulk of it is just sin and salvation. You've sinned, you've messed up, you need to turn back to God. If you do, you'll be saved. Uh, let, let me show you, uh, look at a couple of examples of a couple prophets and some stories that I think are kind of fascinating. First of all, we have the story of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah is mostly in, in 1 Kings, but we do have the book starts out. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. So now we're talking about the northern kingdom, northern king. And he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messenger of the king, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub? the God of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So you see what's happening here. King of Israel falls, gets injured. He wants to know what's going to happen to him. So he appeals to a pagan God. And God deeds with Elijah, his prophet, and Elijah, his prophet, this this phrase is important. Uh... Verse 3, is it because there is no God in Israel? So that's the question. Is there a God in Israel? And the prophets are there to say yes. And the kings are there living as if the answer is no. Is there appealing to pagan prophets? And and that phrase is important. It's going to be repeated. Uh, where else? Verses 6 and then verse 16. Look at verse 6. They said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel? That's the issue. Is there a God in Israel or is there not? Because the kings are acting like there's not. The prophets are there to remind him there is. Verse 16, And said to us, says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of His Word? Um, and now let's look at an example from Elisha. Look at Second Kings chapter 5. This is a story that we're pretty familiar with. I think we've heard this one before. Second Kings 5, uh, beginning in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes... He sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. It's referring to Naaman, who you know, has this leprosy. Verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and Stand up and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So Naaman's upset. He didn't come out and greet me. And what I'm expecting is kind of a magic thing. But instead, Elisha just sends word, just go go bathe in the Jordan seven times. Verse 12, 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is none in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. So here's a pagan who is confessing there's no God anywhere except for the God in Israel. So you see the irony. you got a king of Israel at the beginning who's acting like there's no God in Israel, again coming away, who's now convinced there's no God anywhere except in Israel. And the point I'm making is the role of the prophets is to remind the people, point, to point people back to God, to warn them to go back. Any other thoughts on either of those stories or the role of prophets? Yeah? Yeah, explain explain why. What was pride in the first one? Right. 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 Yeah, this this pride of just I want to know the future. I want to know what's going to happen to me, and instead of going to God and and um, and of course appealing to a foreign god is a is a problem. I get, in some ways, I guess we could say it's prideful. All sin is at some level prideful. Okay, very good. Any other thoughts on that? God warns, and you know. Warnings are are meant to be gracious. They're for our good, right? You think, I think about weather warnings, right? We used to live in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and it was like you know Tulsa and that whole area. You get a lot of tornadoes, and they had tornado sirens. Well, there's no tornado sirens here, are there? Used to be, okay. On base, <laughs> so you know the weather sirens. It was a fairly common thing, you know, and and in fact, I think they would. Test them weekly. So if it happened, if it was Wednesday at noon and you heard them, no, no big deal. <laughs> like the little boy who cried wolf, <laughs> and you just hope that there wasn't a tornado on Wednesday at noon. Uh, but you know, if you heard it in the night, then you know what you typically do is turn the weather on. You know, and then they tell you, you know, you listen, you need to go get in the bathtub or the closet, an interior. And it's funny the difference between my wife and me. She would do what they said. <laughs> And I would run outside to see the tornado. Like, I want to see this. If there's a tornado, let's see it. And so it would, it would actually have the opposite effect on, on us. She's like the obedient one followed to the letter of the law. And I'm like, let's go find it and chase it. And I, 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 miss, I wasn't a chaser, but I did go with a friend one time to chase one, if I remember correctly. Um, of course, I've matured a lot since then. I would never do that now. Right? <laughs> But the warning 
is not meant to be like me, you know? There's a tornado, it's a threat. Here's a siren to tell you to go do something about it. Go to the interior of the house, go to the bathtub, and be protected, right? I mean, you may say, well, it woke me up, I was sleeping good, and now I'm not going to get into good night's sleep. And you could get frustrated about it, or it was a false alarm. That's frustrating. Why they blow the siren for no reason when it really went around us. So you could get about it, but it's, it's there to save life. It's there for good. And in the same kind of way, God's warnings are not meant to be, you know, a fun hater. They're not meant to remove our fun. It's meant to save our life. Like you're, you're heading down a path that's not good, not right. You need to turn around. If you don't, You'll die. And if you do, you'll find life. And so we often think of the warnings as being taking, but in reality, they're life-giving. Any other thoughts on warnings? Any other examples of warnings? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. I'll have to uh, store that away and, and look for that as we're reading. When yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a... And you see that going all the way back to the, you know Moses. If you'll obey, this will happen to obey. So he's been warning them all along. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. I thought about another, another example that came to my mind as we were talking of a warning is, you know, if you go to a doctor and they say to you, you know, if you keep along with this lifestyle, this will happen. You change things, this will happen. You're like, oh, that's the last thing I want to hear. You know, I don't want to go to the dentist and have them say, you need to go buy X, Y, or Z and start doing this. I want them to just say, everything's fine, <laughs> right? And you almost get upset with them. I'm paying you money and you're telling me what's wrong and I got to do this and that. But of course, their their reason for doing it is to try to be a benefit to you and be for your good. But sometimes, I guess the point is this, we don't like to hear the warnings. But they're there for our good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking, we're reading through a book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was going to tell you about a book we've been reading, but I think I think we got too much good stuff coming up, so I'll I'll save that for another time. Okay, fourth, we respond. So we respond to the warning. Everybody responds. You know, the person laying in bed, the siren goes off, telling you a tornado's near. You do. 
you, some person, one person might roll over and go back to sleep. Another person might run to the bathtub and stay in the bathtub all night long. Another person might run outside and go chase the thing and see if they can find it. They're all responses. We respond to the warnings. We respond in different ways, but there's really ultimately two, two responses. One is to repent and return and to listen and say, oh man, thank you for the warning. I need to respond by heeding it and, and, we're, and we return back to God's blessing. And unfortunately, that's not what we're focusing on tonight because that's not really the thrust of 2 Kings. It, it's, a, it's more the thrust of 2 Chronicles because Second First and Second Chronicles are more about the southern kingdom and, and the Davidic kingdom. And so when you're focusing on the southern, there's a little bit more of this repentance and return. You think about some of the good kings like Josiah. So we'll focus more on that uh, in a couple weeks. But tonight we're focusing a little bit more on this option of rejecting. Rejecting and ignoring. Once again, the reason why is because um, not it's because that's the emphasis of Second Kings. Um, so I kind of highlighted from the book two different aspects of this rejecting and ignoring. First one is turning away from. Turn away from God, and in particular, God's Word. Because the Word is, is the warning. He warns us the Word. It's the, the audible voice of the prophet or the Bible or, or the preacher um, or the parent, by the way, right? We turn away from God and His Word. Look at verse 14. It says, uh, but now we're back in chapter 17 again. Chapter 17, verse 14. But they would not listen. It's coming right on the heels of God sending the, the prophets. Verse 13, now verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. So they didn't listen because they were stubborn. What? Somebody give me a good definite. What is stubbornness? What is stubbornness? Unwilling to change? Yep. Any other thoughts on what stubborn? Resist authority? Yeah. Anybody have any examples of ways you've seen stubbornness or been stubborn? I think the, I, th- I think of it as I mean I think it's important to recognize stubbornness has a moral component to it, like like if you say take a bite of it, just one bite, no, like it's just foolish, like just one bite and you're done. You know you only have to have one bite of the green beans. No, at some level it becomes this clash of the wills, and it's more about who's in authority, and it's not about it's not about just an intellectual. I'm just not going to do it because I've weighed the options and I've decided this is not a good option. It's like, I am going to put my foot down. I'm going to prove you don't have authority. I'm not going to do it. And um, 
there's a it's a it's a moral there's a moral component to stubbornness that I think is important to see here. I'm not going to listen to the warning. I'm going to roll over and go to sleep. Um, verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. So they despise strong language. And notice the pattern. They ignore it and now they despise it. The warnings. Like they don't even like it. I don't... When the warning comes, it makes them angry. I don't want to hear it. I want to roll over and go to bed. I don't like the siren. It's loud. It's obnoxious. And I, I hate it. Turn it off. If we can just shut it down, we'll be a lot happier. Um, look at verse 16. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. Like all of them. Not just some of them, not just a few of them, not just the ones, all of them. They abandoned them and, and rejected it. Um, and so, you know, I made the argument on Sunday that to turn away from God's Word is to turn away from God because He's the one who's sending the messenger. He's the one sending His Word. So sometimes we think, I can reject the Bible but still like God or still love God and still be pleasing to God. But if it's His very Word, if He's the one who gave it to us, to reject it is to reject Him. There's no, there's no difference. It would be like me writing a note to my kids, you know, do not eat these cookies. <laughs> and if they eat them, and I say, you just disobeyed me. Oh, we didn't disobey you. We just disobeyed the writing on that. Well, you knew that was me. You knew I was, you, you ultimately disobeyed me because that's my word. That's my writing. You knew that. And so you can't make the argument, well, it's one thing to disobey the Bible. It's another thing to dis- disobey God. But that's what, that's what, that's the natural pattern. We disobey God's Word, therefore we disobey Him. And um, I mentioned on Sunday that sometimes even more conservative churches that would say we have a high view of the Bible, you know, we believe the Bible is God's Word, even some of the more, those churches can kind of subtly reject the Word, subtly uh, kind of turn away from it and abandon it. So what... What are some ways, how does this happen? What, what are some ways this happens? Have, have you ever seen this happen? You don't have to mention specific names of churches. I'm not asking you to do that, but I'm, I'm just saying, how, how does this happen? What does it look like? Yeah. Okay. So like tradition, this is how we've always done it, and in our minds... We do it this way because the Bible says, but in reality, it may not really be because the Bible says. It may just be because this is the way it's always been done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's always been this, um, I mean, it's always been there, but especially, uh, you know, with the uh, kind of this liberal movement, 19th century onward, there's been this idea of we need to preserve Christianity, world, and in order to preserve it, we need to kind of clean it up and get rid of some of the offensive stuff and modernize it. 
and go with some of these more modern trends and more modern values and get rid of some of the more offensive stuff. And so the, the liberal tradition, liberal Christianity, theological liberalism, um, the attempt was always motivated by desire to try to preserve Christianity. They, they didn't start out with, we want to try to uh, you know, kill Christianity. It started out with, we want to preserve. And in order to do that, the, the argument went, we need to clean it up for modern ears. So get rid of the miracles, get rid of the offensive stuff, and adopt the more modern values. But of course, what ends up happening is, what, what, how, what happens on that trajectory if a church goes down that road? Yeah. Yeah, and over time, it's no longer a church. It's just the world. <laughs> Why even call it a church anymore? Yes, sir. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. One example of not guarding the table. Yeah. Thanks for the encouragement. Any other thoughts on how this happens? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And usually, the argument behind it is, we're doing this in order to reach lost people, or we're doing this in order to reach more people. So there's always a... It's, it's, it's never starts with this bad motive. Or at least it, in, on paper, it doesn't sound like it. Like, it sounds like a good motive. Let's preserve Christianity. Yeah, by all means. Let's reach lost people. Yeah, by all means. But then you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. The question becomes, what are you, we're going to do this to reach lost people. What are you reaching them with? You know, what are we, if they're not hearing the gospel, if they're not hearing the Bible, if they're not hearing, then what, what is it that they're ultimately coming for? You know, and when, and when does that happen? Because unfortunately what happens in a lot of these situations is uh, over time, you know, you kind of look around. And go, what what did we what did we reach them? To what did we reach them? And and what's the end? Like, even if we got more people here, for what for what, what's happening now? Um, and you know, there there have been some churches that really went all in, kind of on the seeker sensitive model. And I would even argue some of the most influential. You know, like back in the eighties and nineties, and and even that, some of them are coming around and going. We realize that our people are totally biblically illiterate and they're not discipled and they're not growing in the faith and we're not any further along than we were. And it's like, well, that, doesn't that make sense? Like, where, where would it happen? How could it happen? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, um, I was been listening and studying a little bit about this and, you know, everybody was walking around saying, we believe in the Bible and everybody was saying, we have a high view of the Bible, but it was really like, well, when the rubber meets the road, how are we interpreting it? And it was really a lot, largely the same issues that are now kind of rising to the surface issues around uh, female pastors and issues around, uh, and, and, and some of these social hot button social issues where you had some Southern Baptists saying, we have a high view of the Bible, but, but on some of these issues, they were really missing the mark. And then you had a lot of, a lot of Southern Baptists going, how, is that pos- how can you have a high view of the Bible and yet take this position on, let's say, abortion? And we just can't square these two things. And so you're, you're exactly right. The fundamental issue was the inerrancy of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. Really, there was a litmus test to it because it was some of these social issues that were kind of the, when push comes to shove, we know what your view of the word is based on your position on these issues and whether you're going to go with the culture or whether you're going to go with the Bible. And, uh, and, and interestingly, we're, we're kind of back there again today, right back where we were, uh, not, not just in the SBC per se, but in evangelicalism especially. Okay, good stuff. Any other uh, let me ask this question. We've, we've been talking about churches and denominations. Now let's talk about as individuals. What are ways that we as individuals can abandon the Word without... I mean, we, we still might say, I have a high view of the Bible. I believe the Bible is God's Word. But practically, I as an individual am, am kind of rejecting it practically. What are practical ways I can reject it and yet am I still affirming this really high view of the Bible? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And it also kind of gets back to the tradition point. It's like I kind of I already know what it says. I already know its position on things. I affirm those positions because I I know what it says and I know I believe it. Well, that's a far cry from I need God's Word warning me, stepping on my toes, changing me. I need to be conformed to Christ. And that's really, you know, you do get a lot of Christians who, I don't know, become very legalistic, become very pharisaical, become very self-righteous because they think of themselves as, I believe the Bible. But the Bible is sitting on the shelf and it's not changing them to be more conformed. It creates a lot of problems. And Jesus, I'd say, is... Stronger on that issue than uh, just about any other issue. <laughs> any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that brings up the point. I could be a person who's actually got it off the shelf and reading it and walking away from it and not changed at all. And so one problem is not reading at all. Another problem is reading it, (laughs) but reading it with this constant eye on, you know, what this tells me is wrong with the world and not necessarily what this tells me is wrong with me. You know, I'm supposed to let it step on my toes and apply to me before I apply it to others. And I usually, when if anybody ever comes up to me after church and says, boy, that stepped on my toes, 
Miss Wolford will often ask me, is this going to step on our toes today? <laughs> and I usually say, well, it stepped on my toes first <laughs> this past week. All right, any other thoughts on that? Okay. So the second aspect of this is we turn away from God and His Word, and then we turn to turn to something else. Someone or something else. So I think it's very important to recognize this. When we turn away from God, we are not turning to a kind of... There's not a neutral place. Nobody's neutral. Nobody in the world is neutral. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has values. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody is worshiping something or someone, and it, including us, right? And when, when we reject God and His Word and we turn away from God, we are to something else. Did this just go off? Still working? Okay. All right, very good. Um, so let me show you how we see that in the text. Where, where I got this from. Chapter 17, verse 7. Uh, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. The problem. They're, they're getting away from being concerned about God, and they're being concerned about other gods. Just like the king of Israel in chapter 1, where he's, he fell and he was consulting some other god. Uh, verse 8, And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. So they're, they're following the pattern of the world, basically. And then verse 15, They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. So notice it says they went after false idols, like they're, they're intentionally going after these things. And I, I love that phrase. They, they went after false idols and became false. Because we're all created, all people are created to worship God. And anytime we're not worshiping Him, we're living a false life. There's, a, there's an inconsistency to it. There's an incongruity to it. And um, it's good to, to recognize that and to point that out when people are living very inconsistently. You know, they'll say, don't judge me. Don't make any judgments about me. And then they'll turn around. And, it's good to point that out. Hey, you're making judgments, right? Uh, it's good to point out when, when the argument is made from the senators, you know, we should let people love whoever they want to love. All people ought to be able to love whoever they want to love. Like, really? Follow the logic. Like, all people can love anybody they want to love? Well, I mean, there's a few exceptions. Yeah, there's exceptions. You, you know that. You know there's exceptions. And, and therefore, you know, how do we decide where the exceptions are? So, you know, we all are somewhat inconsistently, but it's good for us to recognize um, why are we living inconsistently? Ultimately, because we're created for God. And it's good to recognize any place where we're, where we're not living that, that, that reality. And they, they went after false idols and became false. All right, verse 16. Verse 16. 
they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. So, you know, obviously they're, they're turning to the other gods, turning to the other images. And then verse 17, they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold to evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And so it's not just the northern kingdom, by the way, that, that sacrifices their children to the false gods. It's also the southern kingdom that will do that. And so to, to me, it just illustrates how committed they were to these other gods. They were so committed to them, they were willing to sacrifice their children to them. Which in my mind is just like, how, I mean, how can God's people get to a point where they're, they're sacrificing them for false gods? It's, it's hard to even wrap my mind around it. Um, so, you know, we and our culture are not necessarily tempted to turn to the exact same gods that they were, Baal and Asherah, but, but our culture does have certain gods. What are some of the gods our culture is inclined to turn toward? Self, money. And then after I ask about the culture, I'm going to ask about us. So we keep, might keep the answers handy, right? What are the gods that our culture is tempted to go after, and what are some of the gods that we're tempted to go after? Right. Yeah. 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 It's a good point that it can be good things, right? Like having children and valuing children, good thing. Can it can it cross over to a point where we idolize our children and our world revolves around them? Yeah, certainly can. So a lot of times it's a good reminder to us that the gods that we can give ourselves to in and of themselves are blessings from God, good things that we have inordinate affections for. Yeah. What are some other examples of that? Let me ask this question. Why is it important that we recognize this about ourselves and that we identify the gods that we tend to turn to? Why, why is that important to, to do that? To not just say, we shouldn't turn to false idols, but to actually identify the false idols, I have a tendency to turn to, and I, I can identify them, I can name them. Why is it important to be able to do that? Yes, absolutely. That's good. Because if Jesus is the solution, if the gospel is the solution, if the gospel saves me, I got to know what it's saving me from. It's saving me from my sin. I got to be able to, what is my sin? Think about the rich young ruler. Jesus says, you got, he identified, you have to go sell everything you own and turn from your sin. For him, that's what it was. For us, it may not be our money. It could be, but it could be something else. But there has to be an identifying. Good point. Yes, sir.
Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, the, the, the self-help movement, a lot, of, a lot of the psychology movement, you're okay. The problem, you know there's a problem in the world, but it's not with you. It's, it's, it's these other things, and you have to identify them and learn how to manage or deal with them in order for you to be happy and have a high view of yourself and so forth and so on. And the point you're making is our, our fundamental problem is ourselves and our own sin. Our fundamental problem, yes, there are certainly can be external things in our life that are not good and need to be dealt with and can add to and create problems, certainly. But it's, they're actually not the problem. The problem is me, my sin, and the only way that can be solved is the gospel. And the gospel solves my sin problem and, and and the message of Christianity is you need this, and this is this is this is what you need more than anything. And a lot of times the message of self help is sort of like, yeah, if Jesus can help you accomplish your happiness or your self worth, then by all means include Jesus in it. But he's kind of more of a means to an end. Is yeah, if he helps you to to deal with your problems, wonderful. And so good good point of uh, distinguishing between. The gospel and the problem that the gospel solves versus other solutions which can be divorced from the gospel and therefore divorced from the real problem. Any other thoughts on that? Why it's important that we recognize the false gods and, and why it's important that we recognize we tend we do this. We I naturally turn to something or someone else. Right? It's not just Israel turning to their particular images or you know thing false gods they turn to, I tend to do this. Right? Why is it why is it crucial that any other thoughts on that? Everything we said is good. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Great point. Great point. I, I mean, I need to know this, first of all, to be right with God. But I also need to know this in order to continue to live a life pleasing to God. You go back to the, the example. Like, I need to continue to love my children, value my children, disciple them, um, invest in them. I also need to make sure I don't overly... It didn't, I don't put them in a position in my life that's unhealthy. And that's going to be, a, you know, I think for any good parent, that's going to be a kind of constant tension. How do I love them, invest in them, and yet not make them the center of my world? And I think if, if a parent's not wrestling with that, pretty much, you know, for, throughout the whole parenting process, uh, you know, probably something's off if, you're, if we're not kind of frequently wrestling with that question. Yeah, good point. Okay, any other thoughts on that? Okay, fifth and finally, God responds. And of course, God's going to respond. He, he does respond to how we respond. So if we repent and return, He restores and there's blessing. And yeah, there still may be some consequences for sin and there may still be some discipline and things like that. But it's a totally different path than if we reject and ignore, and the way he responds if we reject and ignore. And because that's what we're focusing on in Second Kings, that's what we focus on here. 
So notice how God responds. Verse 11. Clear. They, there they made, am I in the right place? Yeah. There they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. So they provoked him to anger. Verse 17. And they burned their sons and their daughters and offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So he got provoked to anger. Therefore, verse 18, the Lord was very with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And so the northern kingdom is gone. And the southern kingdom remains, but not for too long, really just a few chapters, and you get to the end, and they fall to captivity. And it's a consequence of God's judgment. But of course, we know that even though God has cut them off to a certain extent, He's still faithful to His promises to Abraham and David. He still has a plan. And I, I love how the book ends. Even though the whole book has been this unraveling and sin and consequence and casting out. Look at the very end, chapter 25, beginning in verse 27. It says, In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Merodach, that's an interesting name, isn't it? It doesn't mean, evil here doesn't mean necessarily bad, it's just the Hebrew. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. So the whole book is this unraveling sin, God's, you know, sending into exile, but the, but the very end, you got a, a southern king, king of Judah, in Babylon, released from prison, given clothes, seated at the table, fed daily, and given allowance. And I think it's just a small little glimmer of, God still has a plan. He's still faithful to His promises. He's still going to do a work. And we know they're going to be released. They're going to go back. They're going to rebuild. And about 500 years later, Jesus is going to be born. So I think it's always good to keep the continuity. Sometimes we overemphasize the discontinuity between old and then and now. But there's a lot of continuity and a lot of continuity to the story. Jesus, how He relates to the promises and, and I, I mentioned on Sunday, we'll mention again here, I, I think there's a great deal of continuity in the New Testament and the teaching of the New Testament as it relates to this pattern and the warning and the need for us to respond. So let's turn to that passage that I mentioned on Sunday. Turn to Romans 11. Because I, I, think, I think sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, this is the Old Testament, and this is Israel, and we are the church, and things are different. And yes, there are clearly some differences, no doubt. But there's also some a lot of continuity and a lot of similarities. And I think Paul appeals to this in his warning in Romans 11, 
17 to 24. I'm just going to read it here. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of belief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So I think a pretty powerful passage. Um, How would you paraphrase this? What's the main takeaway from this? <laughs> there's some advantage to being a part, but given that we're not, we so there's the original branches, Israel, cut off because of unbelief, right? They rejected, God cuts them off, and we've been grafted in, not a part of natural because of, we're Gentiles. And he says, but don't think, well, I'm a part of the tree, so therefore, don't you got to continue to fear God. In other words, continue to respond to the warnings. Because he says, he'll cut you off too if you go down this path. Right? You go down this path, he'll cut you off. If he was willing to cut them off, he'll cut you off. So therefore, you got to hear the warning and respond and stand firm in the faith. Any other thoughts on this passage, the main takeaway? How to paraphrase it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually have that written down here. Uh, Listen to what I wrote down. We don't believe we can lose our salvation. I don't think this is talking about that. But let's make sure that information of the security of the believer, we don't miss what is being said here which is the warning. So I'm, I'm with you. We, we do affirm the security of the believer, but what I want to make sure we don't do is say, we affirm it, therefore we miss the, the actual warning that's here. So yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So pastorally, say say that again. Right. 
Right. Right. Right, yeah. So from a pastoral perspective, if I have a person who says to me, I'm concerned, I'm afraid, what if this is me? Number one, the fact that you're concerned about it is a really good indication. And number two, just hear the warning and respond. We we don't mean be perfect. We don't mean by that you'll never sin. You're going to constantly be, you know, there's a constant turning from. And if you continue to turn from and turn to and hear the warning and respond, you will prove that you've worked out your salvation, as Paul says. If, on the other hand, you get to a point where you say, I don't care, and the warning sounds out, and you just keep turning over and going back to sleep for the rest of your life, and eventually you literally are turning from God and turning to, and you're never sensitive, you're never responding. You know, I can't, I can't know for sure, but you're, you're giving all kinds of evidence that, that you're not a believer. And of course, you know, we all know somebody we could name who, you know, I don't know, they die, and you say, well, I don't know, uh, there wasn't much evidence, but I sure hope so, and, you know, and, and like I said, we, I don't know, I can't hook a person up to a machine and be like, yeah, well, the machine indicates that you are. Uh, but, you know, that the biblical indication is that God's people are going to hear the warning and respond to it and be sensitive to it, and there's going to be a trajectory of growth. So I know that's what I need to make sure I'm doing and encouraging others to do. And I definitely don't want to give false, you know, false assurance. I think that's what a lot of times in churches we tend to do. Well, as long as you went down front when you were eight, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, it does matter what you do. It does matter that you continue to, because this is the pattern, right? So, Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I know there's a war. Right. Right. That's a good line. I have to remember that. Right. I think the way I would the way I would take this is, you know, Paul Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to Gentile, I mean, a, a largely Gentile populated church in Rome, some Jews. And, and, and I think he's saying, in, in general, the Jewish people have rejected Christ. And he's wrestling with that question. If, if, the, if the Jews are God's people, why are so many of them rejecting Jesus? That's the question. The answer, Paul's answer is, uh, number one, he says, it's not all of them. Some of them are believers. Paul is an example. So one answer is, it's not all the Jews. So even when he talks about the Jews have been cut off, he doesn't mean 100%. There are some who do believe. So some Jews who are natural branches who are still a part of the tree. In the same kind of way, it's not all Gentiles have been grafted in. It's all Gentile believers have. And even that is a group of people that a person can be a part of or not. And so how do I know if I'm a part of it? Well, one way I know is, you know, am I trusting in Christ? And do I continue to trust in Christ? And so the, I think part of the dilemma here, and I would say Gentiles. He's talking in general about Gentiles. Like, it's opened up to the Gentiles. The, the Jewish people 
have been removed because of unbelief. It's not 100% of Jewish people. Some have been grafted in because they're believers. And, and even a future. There's a future grafting in of them that this points to. Um, so, but, but there's obviously a number of Jewish people who are not. In the same kind of way, Gentiles, a number who are not, some who But the warning here is for us as a church and as individuals to make sure that we respond to the warning and we are grafted in. And don't prove to be, to don't prove to be those who rejected and, and never truly belonged. Right. 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 Yeah, I think that's a great application and a legitimate issue. I mean, but I think what he's talking about here is the issue of unbelief. Because that's that's the language he uses. They were cut off because of their unbelief, um, and I think that's what he's saying. You too can be cut off if you go down that path of just blatant. Blat- I think it's I think it's a warning against blatant rejection, which is a good reminder. God uses warnings to persevere His people. His people respond to them, so it's a good reminder. I need to respond to the warnings. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Good discussion. I'm sorry that we're probably ought to go. I don't want to keep you guys too late. Unless there's anything pressing, questions, comments? I got you. Yeah, I get, well, I would say God responds. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that kind of gets to the point of what we focused on tonight is God's response to this, and in Second Chronicles, we'll talk about God's response to this, which then kind of lead back. Yeah, yeah. Good, good point. Okay, anybody willing to pray for us? Anybody?
Thank you, Paul.